0: Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Momenta Edge podcast. I'm Ed McGuire. Insights partner at Momenta Partners, and today our guest is Bill Schmarzo, who is CTO of IoT and Analytics at Hitachi Venterra and Executive Fellow at the San Francisco School of Management. Uh, Bill is also a uh, what we call an an OG of analytics. He's got he's been a, uh, a really a, a prominent uh, leader in, uh, in driving you know thought leadership and and evolution around analytics and uh, our we had uh, first in, i first encountered bill uh, back when he was in the business intelligence world and it's it's been fascinating to see him uh, end up in uh, connected industry and bill it's it's great to have you as a guest thanks ed thanks for having me on board so i'd like to just dive into a bit of your background could you share you know what has shaped your views of of analytics technology and and ultimately led you to your current role at uh, Hitachi Ventura?
1: well if if we go dial it way back and I think it's it's a situation where I've always been interested in numbers and analytics and that probably goes back to my youth um, being a big fan of baseball following baseball like I did back in the old days, um, and even got hooked into this this game called Stratomatic Baseball, which is probably somewhat like what the Sabermetrics folks were doing around using uh, analytics to help play games. And I was really caught up in that that fad or that fashion, and uh, it really taught me that if you had a a superior understanding of the analytics, it gave you an unfair advantage in the game. Um, I remember studying the cards feverishly, so I knew – what players to play in what situations. And I even knew what players to trade for to um, fill gaps. And so at a very young age, I learned that really having a good understanding of the data and the analytics gave you an advantage. And so throughout my life, I've always sought out opportunities to get involved with data. Um, But data to me is just fuel, right? It's I spend a lot of time in data, but data by itself kind of lays their limp on the floor. It's it's the analytics that gives it life, and so to me, it's always been what what are the things that are buried in that data? What are the, you know, the trends and patterns and associations and relationships that are buried in that data that I can
0: really use to my advantage? Great. So when you When you started working with with Stratomatic, I mean, how did how did uh, what what led you to uh, work with data analytics?
1: So, so what happened is, in in college, I got a um, a degree in math and computer science, and then got my my MBA in information systems. And all along, I was really interested in this continuing uh, search to uh, find ways to apply data. And, and of course, in the world of business, it's they're everywhere, right? There's opportunities everywhere. And so um, I got started out of college at Arthur Anderson, uh, back when they used to be Arthur Anderson, and I worked in their uh, MIC, the Management Information Consulting Division, and I worked with databases. I wrote some database algorithms to help uh, expedite the ability to pull data out of databases and um, soon led to really my, my Forrest Gump moment in my life, right? Everybody's life is... It's full, full of forced gut moments, right? Right place, right time, not because you're tall or from Iowa. You know, sometimes you're just lucky. And my forest gut moment was in 84, and I stumbled upon this company called Metaphor Computers, who was really trying to define in those days what they call a decision support system. How, did, how could we help organizations um, better leverage all the data out there? And we just happened to be when, when Metaphor launched, was also about the same time that electronic point of sale data started becoming available. And so the uh, we went from looking at bi-monthly, you know, Nielsen audit data that is six observations a year across, you know, 13, 15 markets, to all of a sudden having all this detailed transactional data about what people were buying, what they were buying in combinations, when they came. I mean, we knew also we knew so much more. About our customers and their buying patterns, and 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 the effectiveness of campaigns and new introductions. It was one of those moments. It was if you if you were a data and analytics junkie, that was like being in a candy shop. A kid being in a candy shop. It was just unbelievable the stuff we could do with it. And very fortunate that I was working with uh, while I was Metaphor, we were working closely with with Procter and Gamble. We ended up becoming our biggest shareholder. Um, and I was putting in, in these decision support systems across all different parts of Procter and Gamble. And in the process of doing that, I was being indoctrinated into Procter and Gamble's, you know, data driven decision making process. And it all kind of came together. So so to be honest with you, I I got lucky. And that really showed me both the combination of metaphor as far as our technology that it could really exploit data and then how Procter and Gamble was trying to use data to transform its business. It was really one of those Lucky moments for me,
0: how did the lessons that that you learned early on really translate into an evolution through d- different types of technologies as as you as you evolve past executive information systems into you know early uh, you know early generations of business intelligence and and up through uh, big data and and AI i mean are there were there some F- foundational principles that are are still relevant today yeah
1: actually there I, I think two of them that jumped out at me is is first off, we were always business focused that is before we ever put you know analytics to the data, we knew what we were going to to do ahead of time we'd gone through the process of trying to identify you know what it is we're trying to accomplish, what was important, what wasn't important, how we were going to use that information, so before we ever started you know, kind of screwing around with the data, we had a really good idea of what we were trying to do, you know, and and understood, you know, how we were gonna measure progress and success. What were the KPIs we were gonna use to measure success? So to me that was one of the key fundamental things was that it it wasn't a science experiment. It was a business process that we were going to attack a particular business problem and you know, some cases it was new product introductions, in some cases it was promotional effectiveness. In one case, we actually did some detailed analysis on some potential acquisition candidates for them. So we we was always around the business, and then we used that focus to figure out you know what data analytics we were going to need. So to me, that that's what what I learned from Procter and Gamble and those engagements was focus on the business, start with the business. If if you don't do that, then you're likely to go off and spin your 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 tires. Doing things that, while maybe interesting to you, aren't strategic, actionable, or material for the for the problem you're trying to go after. Let's talk about. A, oh, go ahead. The second thing I think I that I learned maybe over time, but sort started becoming evident, is that data the quality of data is always going to be a challenge. Um, time and time again, I see technologies come along and make this promise that. The data, they're going to solve the data quality problems. I, I love the conversation when when you know, the companies, when Hadoop first came out, promised that e, ETL was dead. It's dead. We're not going to need that anymore. Like, really? Really? And that isn't ETL. It's not about just getting access to the data. ETL is about how do you integrate it? How do you normalize it? How do you cleanse it and augment it and enrichment? It was, people really don't think enough about how important data quality is, and in, in a time and day where we're trying to make really important business or even social decisions, you, you can't stress enough the importance of understanding what data you have, the quality of that data, and then what you can do to enrich that data in a manner that allows you to make better decisions.
0: So. Uh... That's, uh, I mean, it's it's a really uh, kind of fundamental uh, insight. But uh, I, uh, people in technology are constantly uh, you know, focused on the, the latest new thing or, or new technology innovations. Um, I'd be interested to get uh, a bit of perspective on on your evolution uh, uh, past analyzing business data to, you know, to looking at, at operational data uh, and, and industrial data. Could, could you talk about the, the origins of what, you know, what brought you to Hitachi uh, Vantara? Well, um,
1: what brought me to Hitachi Vantara probably had nothing to do with technology uh, and data and probably everything to do with uh, a personal friendship in another four-scope moment. Um, you mentioned, Ed, that I teach at the University of San Francisco, and I, uh, I teach an MBA class there called the Big Data MBA. We were doing uh, one of our research projects was on triaging the uh, digital transformation um, you know, rise and fall of, of GE. To me, GE was um, a poster child for digital transformation. It seemed to have everything going right for it, and then all of a sudden, it couldn't do anything right. It just seemed like the bottom fell out. It just the whole thing fell apart. So I wanted my students to go out and say, do me some research and figure out from your perspective, what did they get wrong? What did they get right? And what would you, if you were the head of that place, have done differently? I mean the advantage of being a teacher is you get the students to do all the all the grunt work for you. And so off they scattered and they did some research and and we're getting I, I teach on a Thursday night, so I'm getting ready to teach a class and I run into my old friend, Brad Surick, who Brad and I used to work together back in the old days at business objects. And Brad had been the chief operating officer at GE digital. And so he knew the GE story quite well. And uh, he had recently gone to Hitachi Vantara as their chief product and strategy officer. And so I, I said, you know, we are talking, I said, Brad, I got an assignment for you. Would you like to come Thursday night to my class? And the students are going to present their findings on GE and, um, and their transformation there. And I'd love to have you have a debate with them. And Brad was like, hey, it sounds great. I'm all in. So Brad came to the class. We had this very robust conversation. The students had done some very interesting research, came from some very interesting perspectives. And it was a fun class, right? There's just a lot of ideas passing back and forth. And as the class is over and we're walking out of the class, Brad looks at me and smiles and he says, Bill, I have a job for you. I said, what's that? He says, I need to have a chief technology officer at Hitachi Vantara, somebody who can really guide our IOT and analytics initiatives. And I looked at Brad and I said, Brad, I'm probably the world's worst chief technology officer. Cause I really don't know much about technology. and I even care less about it. I'm not a technology guy. I said, I'm a customer guy. I am. I think economics is more important than I, than, than technology. And he smiles really big and he goes, that's why I want you for the job. So that's kind of how that came about. It wasn't, You know, I'm I'm probably the industry's worst chief technology officer, because technology is not my motivating factor. Like I said to Brad, I said, I think economics is a much more powerful um, weapon for us as a company. As we look at all this IoT data, all this industrial data, and all the things that are going on, I think economics is more important than technology, because at the end of the day, economics is about the creation of wealth. And that's what we're trying to do. We have all these new devices, all this new data. And all the ability to do things at the edge, to take action at the edge, we couldn't do before. How are we going to leverage that to create wealth? I said, that's the key challenge. And so I got the job, and I'm still there.
0: <laughs> well, I'd like to come back and, and, and dive a bit deeper into uh, Hitachi Vantara. But I'd love to get your perspective on you know, how you see the, the current state of the market and, and really how it's evolved over the past several years.
1: You know, Ed, it's, on on one hand, um, you know, I'm of two minds in this situation. I think on one hand, I think there is a growing awareness of the business impact that technology can have, um, especially around how technology can can really help organizations to re-engineer their business models around creating new sources of customer and market value or wealth but we still start the conversation with technology. We still start the technology. I, I just had this, this last week, this internal debate, and one of our product managers came to me and said, hey, we got a customer, here's their data, go find cool things. And I was like, that's not how the process works. And I explained to them how the, all the work that we do before we, before we ever put science to data, here is all the work that has to take place first, right? Do you understand in detail, the problem you're solving and what the, who the stakeholders are and how it's gonna impact them. Do you understand the KPIs and the metrics against what you're gonna measure uh, progress and success? Do you understand the potential impediments, what you're gonna do about it? Understand the risk of false positives and false negatives. Have you, have you gone through a process to identify, validate, value, and prioritize the different decisions that are required to support that particular use? case? Right? So there's all these things that have to happen first. And it's not hard. It's not hard, Ed. It just takes time. And we are impatient as a race, right? As a human race, we are impatient. We want instant gratification. I give you my data and do stuff with it. And we've seen this since the whole Hadoop data science thing sort of broke out. Everybody thought if you just get a data scientist and give them some data, great stuff is going to happen. And great stuff didn't happen. It didn't happen, and so immediately they blamed the data science, they blamed the technology, and the whole problem started with the fact that we start with technology instead of starting with the business problem and really thoroughly understanding. Let me—you got me on a rant here, Ed. So it's your fault. But I remember this one project I remember. I was I was, um, triaging, and it was about how this—they um, were leveraging uh, cell data from a from a cellular phone system to. Um, better predict when customers are going to attract, when they're going to leave. And the model was really impressive, right? They noticed all kinds of things. They, uh, they, they found all these key variables about it. And ultimately, this data could have been very instrumental, not only, only in their customer acquisition and retention campaigns, but also in their strategy for where they're going to put sales. And they did all this work. and They presented it back to the business users, and the business users looked at them like they had lobsters crawling out of their ears, like, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand how I would use it. I don't understand how this would support the decisions I'm trying to make. So they'd done all this great work, had built these fabulous models, really impressive. And the users looked at it and said, eh, I can't use it. And it was done. Conversation over. Right? And so we, we don't see, Ed, to ever learn from that. And here's the reason why this is such a travesty is because it's the business users who really understand the decisions they're trying to make and here's kind of the kind of the, one of the secret sauce things these business users have been making these decisions for years maybe decades and a lot of them use little heuristics to help them make decisions if we can uncover those heuristics we have a chance to change to turn heuristics into math and scale it out to prove out those heuristics and so by bringing the business users into the process right up front Not only do you build better analytics because you now have better insights into the kinds of things you're trying to do with the data and the kinds of decisions you're trying to make, but more importantly or equally importantly is from a cultural perspective, the business users now feel like they're part of the solution.
0: How does the process of of, uh, advocating a a business value approach differ when you move from working with data that's you know that's generated by business applications to industrial applications where or, or industrial data where you have you know a very different operative paradigm at work at least uh, around the you know the systems that are are designed for for resiliency and you may have have uh, you know, very different cultures uh, in, in operational technology <laughs> versus information technology how do you how do you bridge that and what are some of the, some of the lessons that, that that may be applicable from the um, from working with business data? So the, the operations personnel they're all from Missouri show me
1: I think they, they want to see how you can help them. Now, again, that requires a lot of work up front to understand what it is they're trying to accomplish, to really understand and walk in their shoes. That means you're going to get up at you know, 3 a.m. in the morning and walk through the factory with them to understand what kind of problems they're trying, what kind of maintenance problems they're trying to solve and how they're going to do it. Right? It's, you, you really have to walk in their shoes. And unlike you know, meeting with business people whose, whose shoes are you know, uh, you know, black wingtips in and, and a fancy office, these people live in, you know, cornfields in the middle of Iowa who are trying to do maintenance on wind turbines or they're in a the factory somewhere, right? So you, you have to get out and you have to be part of their process and you have to understand how they work. By the way, design thinking, persona development, customer journey maps are all wonderful ways to really understand what it is they're trying to do so that you can better understand where and how you can apply data and analytics to help them do their jobs better. So you have to really be involved in them. You got to be. You got to wear the you know the hard hats and walk through the mud with them to really understand what's going on. The other thing I would say, Ed, about this. So that's that's step one, right? You got to walk literally walk in their shoes. Um, so they understand, you understand, Not only do they see that you're involved, right? Show me that you care. But you're also learning all these key aha moments, all these key little heuristics that can actually make your analytics better. The other thing I would say, and this is sort of not along that question you asked, Ed, but the thing that makes IoT for me so interesting, it isn't just about the data. It's about my ability to act on that data at the edge. I'm not just collecting data. I mean, if, if I was just collecting data and dropping it into a data lake and doing, you know, predictive maintenance and mm. demand forecasting sort of stuff, that's, I don't even consider that IoT. I consider that big data, right? Where IoT becomes IoT is the ability at the edge to stream Aggregate, summarize, analyze, and act at the data at the edge. Not having to bring it back to, you know, some data like to do some analysis, but the edge itself. I can now make decisions. And to me, that is the most exciting part of the whole IoT conversation because what is happening at the edge in these PLCs and these sensors is more and more capabilities from a processing and storage perspective are being pushed out there. These are like little many data centers out there, right? And they've got the ability to house lots of data and, and I can process some pretty advanced analytics out there. And that's, and that's only going to get more and more true as organizations start to really converge on building, you know, intelligent products and smart spaces. That's when we, when we see core organizations really trying to build intelligent products, intelligence happens at the edge.
0: Are there some technologies that, you know, that uh, that you would point to uh, that have, are significant developments in around data management analysis that, have, you know, that have been you know really meaningful in, in advancing uh, capabilities, advancing the ability to, you know, to really generate business value over the past, uh, you know, d- during your career? I mean, what, what, what would what are the, the pivotal technology changes or advancements that, that you'd point to?
1: Well I, I think one of the just generally speaking, I think the whole idea of around data enrichment, um, how do I take my data sets and make them more valuable and, and that 's more than just you know accuracy and, and granularity and light to of data, but what can I really do to transform that data to give it to give it more um, more characteristics, more more metadata about the data that really help my models. And I, I think that's a really big thing. I think this whole area around feature engineering and the role of that is gonna become more and more important. I think the, data, the role of data engineer is gonna become more and more important because I think the work the data engineer can do to get the data and enrich it eventually allows my data scientists to build better models. So I'm not sure it's a technology per se, as more than it's a, it's almost a discipline that the data engineering, feature engineering, that the skills that are happening there, um, I think are evolving pretty quickly. Of course, we've got much more powerful technology. The, the technology, you know, the processing power, um, you know, the, the CPUs, we've got, you know, AI specialized CPU or machine learning specialized CPUs. Um, you know, storage keeps getting cheaper and cheaper and smaller and smaller. So all of these different technology evolutionary things are are happening at a point in time where I think it's going to allow us to do more with that data quality, data enrichment challenges. Again, it gets back to that very fundamental question, how rich is your data? How accurate? If the data you have isn't accurate, you're not going to get good results. And I can dramatically improve the quality of my analytic models by enriching the data, bringing in other data sources and blending them together, twisting them together, you know, meshing them together. So, to me, that's not specifically a technology per se as much as it's a discipline of folks who are leveraging advances in technology to make that data more valuable.
0: On one of our prior conversations, you had mentioned that there there was a really big difference in learning how to analyze data and approach data analysis using big data technologies. Hadoop specifically Compared to the you know the business business intelligence technologies the uh the, the you know the, the really the, the the traditional business analytics that based on data warehousing paradigms that you had worked with before you know how was big data different for you know for you and 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 what were some of the lessons that uh that you had to learn when you started working with Hadoop.
1: Actually, Ed, I would think the, it was it was the unlearning that was the hard part for me. Um, I had grown up. Uh, I, I started off at Metaphor, worked with Ralph Kimball, uh, very strong star schema bigot, conform dimensions, all that. Wrote a couple of chapters in some of Ralph's books. So I, it, it, you know, I've always been a star schema guy, and I've always well, and and, and in the BI space, that's how that's how things worked. Right, you, you had to have a schema. Before you could do anything you had to have a schema so I was also always a schema guy everything started with a schema when I would talk to a customer in my head and I was I was literally building the star schema in my head what are the dimensions what are the dimensional attributes what are the facts I know about the aggregation Right. I was doing all that kind of stuff in my head and then I go to Yahoo but when I went there another another four step moment they were, we're building off this Hadoop capability. And and it allowed me to get access to data in a that in a manner and in a speed that I could never do before because I didn't need to first build a schema. If I had you know the you know Yahoo is full of log files, right? Semi-structured data, all separated by commas, right? And and so they, it, it it wasn't it wasn't I didn't have to build a schema first to get be able to analyze the data. The data came in as is. And that the ability to load data quickly and not have to build the schema first dramatically changes the kinds of stuff you can do, not only the speed of it, but the kind of data I can get at. Because now what I'm doing is I'm basically building schemas on query. Right? When I, when I want to pull data, now I build a schema. And by the way, my schema is a flat file. It's, it's not a dimensional file. It's a flat file because flat files, I can build lickety-split. And, I, and for all the, you know, my, my data warehouse days, I would, have, I would have had a conniption because flat files are horrible waste of space, storage space, right? You're repeating all those fields over and over and over again. I don't care anymore. My storage is free almost, right? It's just, it, storage costs are dropping every day. Storage is not my, my the cost of storage isn't my key factor. Time to make an accurate and predictive decision is more important. Storage isn't my enemy. Time is my enemy. And so I had to unlearn a lot of how I thought about data and analytics. You know, it doesn't start with tables and rows and schemas. It really starts with what is the hypothesis, business hypothesis trying to prove out. What data might I need, I don't care if it's structured, unstructured, video, audio, I, I, photos, I don't care. I don't care. And then once I know what data I might need, then I start going through that, this very highly iterative, fail fast, learn faster data science process. And that was another thing, too. Right? I mean, the, being a, a data warehouse administrator, you, you, you spend a lot of time up front interviewing everybody you can talk to to capture every question you might ever want to ask to the schema to support that. And your days are great until somebody knocks on your door and says, hey, Schmars, I need to add a new data source. I want to add Facebook data to this data. And it's like, holy cow, your world comes to a screeching end. right? It's like asking for new data was like a hideous crime. And so the, the data warehouse to add a new data source took months. You know, six, we used to joke we say six months and a million dollars. I don't care what the data source is. It's going to be six months and a million dollars. But now with this Hadoop schema-less environment, I can add a data source now, I don't need to worry about a schema. And I only worry about the schema when I start to construct the queries, which I'm going to pull the data from, and and, and then I'm going to build a flat file. And so the the BI environment was very highly engineered, and we can go into a lot of detail about why we had to do that. Um, But it was highly engineered and was very brittle. The data science environment, but it was also broader. BI was trying to address a much broader range of questions. Data science is very focused. You pick a hypothesis. How do we predict customer attrition? Right. You pick a problem and then you start bringing data and you start testing it, and you start enriching it, you try different combinations, you try another data and you're going through and you're failing and failing all the time. And you, you have to have an environment that allows you to fail enough times before you feel comfortable in the end results. Because one of the hardest things about doing predictive analytics one of the hardest things about doing predictions is knowing when is good enough good enough. Because you're making predictions, you're never certain of what 100% is. Right? Yogi Berra famously said, you know, making predictions is really hard, especially predictions mm-hmm. about the future. Right? So, and it's true. So, you're never 100% confident in what you've got. So, you've got to get a comfort level that says, okay, I think the results are good enough.
0: What are some of the skill sets that that a data scientist needs to bring to bear that are uh, that are unique versus a you know traditional business intelligence uh, you know, report designer or or, or or business analyst.
1: So data scientists have to be able to build analytical or mathematical models. They've got to be able to codify cause and effect. That's that's the heart of it. Right? They're 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 building building models that tell them you know they're what. Is likely to happen. Um, they got to understand the um, you know goodness of fits and P values and T's and F values and things like that because they got to understand, again, when is good enough good enough? What is the cost of false positives and false negatives or type one and type two errors? So, but the, the key thing is they actually have to codify cause and effect. you got to build models. At some point in time, you've got to build a mathematical model. Um, when you do BI, you don't have to do that. You're building reports and dashboards. You're taking existing data. You're not other than making sure the data is accurate. You're not you're not trying to predict. You're trying to report on what happened. And by the way, I will say that though the data scientist is trying to do is trying to codify cause and effect, the fastest way to screw up the productivity of your data scientists is to make them also do data engineering work. Right, because then they're trying to they're wearing two hats and they're trying to cycle between those two hats. Uh, we 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 think about data science pods. When we put together a project team, we have a pod. Um, it's got a senior data scientist. It's got a junior data scientist. It has a data engineer. It's got business stakeholders, and this will probably surprise you. It has a design thinking person involved in that pod. And that's how we attack projects is we use these pods because I can't afford to have a data scientist try to do everything. i gotta, I got to be able to dole out capabilities. And when I have these pods, my, my productivity and effectiveness increases dramatically. And by the way, it's a lot easier to hire. But now I can start hiring people. I need I, oh I need to have a couple of junior data scientists, right? And I need to have a design person who can help us to you know uncover these these insights buried in the in the customers' brains. So it's I'll give you a really long winded answer, Ed, sorry, but it's it's the difference is data scientists at some point has to be able to write code or math that codifies, that codifies cause and effect.
0: What are some of the business problems that that you've been able to to address employing these techniques? As you know, as you, I mean, it's certainly the. If, if, as you as you start to look at what business intelligence historically has been able to uh, accomplish, you know you're able to identify patterns in sales or, or inventory and, and and really see relationships uh, and and trends that might not necessarily be uh, intuitive when you're looking at say the raw data, but with 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 data science, with with big data, I think this it certainly has opened up uh, a lot of new uh, types of business problems to be addressed. And and you know if as you compare the you know most successful applications of BI to to big data, and and as as we start to uh, introduce machine learning and AI, I mean you know what are what are some of the key differences and and I would say most most emblematic uh, success. Successful use cases of, of these different approaches. Wow, um,
1: you can you can pick almost any industry, and I can cite to you situations where we've been able to have impact over, the, especially these past you know ten or so years. You know, customer retention, customer acquisition, customer maturation, uh, increasing likelihood to recommend. Um, in hospitals, we've done projects around um, uh, unplanned readmissions and. Hospital-acquired infections and asset utilization optimization. In education, we've done things around student retention, um, uh, how you acquire students. Um, In sports, you do things around you know optimizing player performance while minimizing wear and tear. In in IOT space, it's around unplanned operational downtime or reducing excessive and obsolete inventory or improving first-time fix or on-time delivery. It's it's. The, 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 the challenge, Ed, is, is not the lack of opportunities, it's that organizations have too many. It's, it's almost impossible to walk in an organization, any organization, and not immediately within the first half hour, start identifying all kinds of opportunities where you can leverage data and analytics to help prove operations. It, they're everywhere. And so the challenge isn't the lack of opportunities, it's that you have too many. And what happens when you have too many, it gets right into the crease that organizations do very poorly. Organizations do a very poor job of prioritizing and do a very poor job of focusing. Right? No one wants to do just one to build out their analytic capabilities and their, their data capabilities. They want to try to do three or four of these things. I mean, what happens when you try to do three or four of these things simultaneously is you dilute the capabilities of the organization. And the and the, organ- the, the part of the organization that sees that first are the business stakeholders. Right? You, they're only getting half-assed efforts from the IT and data science organization to solve their problems. And when The problem is you try to solve all the problems, you end up solving none of them. So what we've found, and I'm, sure I, and I'm sure there's many other ways, approaches you can do this, but what we've found works for us is we go through a process, we go through an envisioning process led by our design thinking organization, where we identify, validate, vet, value, and prioritize the use cases. We go through a very thorough process. Sometimes this will take two weeks to really get the buy-in of the organization. And when we walk out of that, not only do we know our top priority use cases from both a business value and implementation feasibility perspective, but now we have a roadmap. We know that this use case gets done first, and that it provides, the, it's a precursor to these two use cases here. And now I have a roadmap that shows me how I'm going to start applying data and analytics across these really key business problems. And oh, by the way, each one of these use cases has a, has a positive ROI. I can pay for the analytics project use case by use case. I can't if all I'm doing, I can't pay for it all I'm doing is buying technology and hope that someone along that comes along can solve my, my business users' problems.
0: Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I mean, that really hits at the at the heart of the issue, right? Which is that that you it, it, all all of these applications of technology really have to be tied to to positive business outcomes. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about what you're doing at uh, Hitachi Vantara, and. Understand a little bit more about the you know the, the portfolio of offerings and and the specific approach that um, that you guys are are bringing to bear in the market.
1: So so Ventara is pretty fortunate in that we we come to the game with some assets already in place like right? we Hitachi Data Systems like right? we've already got a very solid data business. Uh, we also own Pentaho, which is a great um, data integration and um, I will say an adequate analytic capability. Um, we're building out this thing called Lumada, which is really an IoT capability that allows us to blend both the Pentaho and the HDS capabilities to become much more um, not just IoT-centric, but overall improves our ability to, uh, and the whole advanced analytics, you know, the whole machine learning, deep learning, neural networks, uh, reinforcement learning sort of space. And so we're, we're, we're building out capabilities, but We've torn a page out of what I hope is my book is that, is that we're starting by focusing on problems, right? We're leading with applications. So our first application is all around maintenance insights. Um, think about how an organization can use the data analytics, especially all the IOT data, to reduce unplanned operational downtime. Operational downtime, whether you're a fleet of trucks or an airport or an airline or a, an entertainment venue, whatever it might be. Unplanned operational downtime costs you dollars, right? Um, both hard dollars as well as you know soft dollars or unrelated dollars and things like overtime and, and inventory. It also costs you on user satisfaction. right? So there's so we're focused on maintenance insights first, to really help organizations to reduce unplanned operational downtime. And getting that sort of a laser focus allows us to make certain that what we're building from, at least from my perspective, the data and analytics capabilities, are very much focused on that. We're focused on what technologies, what analytics, what data do we need, what enrichment techniques do we need, what data engineering techniques do we need in order to really help to better predict and reduce unplanned operational downtime. And that that problem in itself, of course, there's all kinds of sub-use cases that go underneath that operational down, just operational downtime. Right. When you way. What what parts need to be fixed? When is it going to be, when did you have to fix it? What's the severity of that, right? What's the, what happens if you wait an extra day? Who's going to fix that? What inventory do I need? What consumables do I need, right? So it has this cascading impact where solving just that one problem has a whole series of decisions that support it. And we want to basically improve the effectiveness of each and every decision we're making because they're all interrelated. And if we can do that, we get this huge synergy effect that really does help to drive and reduce unplanned operational downtime. So an application-centric approach, really focused in how do we help our clients drive value and let that focus drive what's happening under, behind the products that help us get there.
0: Are you focused on specific industries or, or, or verticals? You
1: know, there's there's obviously interest in like transportation and utilities, oil and gas, um, you know, fleets. But unplanned operational downtime is an issue for hospitals and sports stadiums and inter- and and amusement parks and um, you I mean, you almost can unplanned operational downtime is a problem that goes across a lot of different industries. And so what we're finding is yet that our most ripe conversation. And again, you got to think about who we who we are. Right, we're Hitachi. We have business units that make trains and cranes and trucks and CAT scans and MRI machines, right? So we have a natural tendency to want to go towards those industries because we've got um, brethren already in that space that we can help immediately. But it isn't just those industries. It's a number of different industries that can benefit from how do I reduce unplanned operational downtime?
0: So the... Hitachi uh, relationship is is also intriguing as, as as well and you earlier on in the conversation you were talking about you know the, the the lessons that that we might we may be able to take from from GE but you know GE has this unique combination of, of industrial businesses and and a you know, a, a digital business that, that was really focused on on data analytics in in many uh, you know in many similar Capacities to uh, what Hitachi is looking to do. Um, you know, wh- what is the, you know, what are some of the advantages or, or dynamics of, of being a part of, of Hitachi? Well, the, the
1: biggest advantage is we have ready access to um, subject matter expertise. We're trying to improve the unplanned operational downtime of for trains. Well, we got a whole group that manufactures trains, both the rolling stock as well as locomotives. Right, we have a ready source we can go to, and we can collaborate with to help build out, you know, maintenance insights around uh, trains and rail service. Um, same thing with, you know, Hitachi has a healthcare unit that, that manufactures, you know, CAT scan machines and MRI machines. So again, we we have this ready source of subject matter expertise that really can help us to prioritize, identify and value, and prioritize the use cases that we're going after. It also gives us, you know, from a, um, a value creation perspective, a very unique place to sit. And then probably, I'm, I don't know GE that well, but I would imagine it was the same thing for GE as well. Because all of these industrial devices are getting smarter, right? We're moving towards an age where these devices are going to self-monitor, self-diagnose, and self-heal. And they're going to use data and analytics to become much more intelligent. Um, and we have the opportunity by being inside of Hitachi to help them create smart devices against devices that 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 get smarter through every interaction. So it's it, be honest with you for me Ed, it's it's a great place to be. It's a great place to be. And I, and I also gotta say that um, in working with the Japanese, I spent, a, I spent a lot of time flying to Tokyo and back and forth, is they've got a very they they want a very practical approach they're not seduced by shiny new objects. And you think about a train, right? These trains will run for you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And so they're not shiny new object infatuated. They're infatuated with results. You know, how do you improve the performance of my trains by 2%? That, that's a lot of money, a 2% improvement. And so they, they too are very much focused not on the technology, but they're focused on the outcomes that we can drive from the technology. And for me, that that is great. Right? That's 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 where I live. That's starting back to my Procter and Gamble days. That's what I learned. And so I'm I'm really in my element here. I it's, I very much enjoy it. Um, it's a great cultural environment. They they want to get things done, um, but you have to be very thorough. And so you don't find yourself being rushed into technology projects for the sake of technology. You find that you have to do a lot of due diligence up front to make sure you know exactly what you're going to do and you have the buy-in of the key business stakeholders and what you're going to do. And that's a lesson that every company should walk away from, walk away from this conversation with. You've got to start with a really thorough understanding of what you're trying to accomplish, what outcomes you're trying to drive, and don't get... Infatuated with, with a shiny new technology objects. They're great, but they're enablers, right? I, I just, I'm writing a blog right now about, you know, do or do not, there is no enable, right? To, to kind of steal from Yoda, right? Enabling is not where it is. You got to do something. And so having these enabling technologies is not sufficient. It's how you're using these enabling technologies to drive business outcomes. That's what's significant.
0: And that's such a it's such a key theme that it comes up in in the, the conversations that we've been having on our uh, on our podcast. I, I I do want to turn the conversation to uh, to a technology once again, but uh, really to get your your thoughts on the potential business impact and misperceptions around artificial intelligence and and machine learning in particular. I mean, this has been – 2018, in many respects, has been a a year where AI hype was – and fear is probably over the top. But I'd love to get your take on the applicability and the value potential of the the technologies uh, and some of the misperceptions that you see out there.
1: Well, I, I, so, Ed, I'll start off right off the bat by struggling with, with what AI is. Right? I, I can't find an AI algorithm. I can find machine learning algorithms, right? Supervised, unsupervised, or reinforcement. I can find you know, neural network or deep learning algorithms out there, but I can't find an AI algorithm. Well, what is AI? Well, to me, AI is a categorization of all these other different technologies, whether it be supervised machine learning or antagonistic machine learning or blah, blah, blah machine learning. It's, it's, it's an overarching category, and there's a lot of things you can do with machine learning that aren't going to lead to evil robots roaming around the, the streets of Palo Alto. It's, you know, we already got all kinds of other problems in Palo Alto. We don't need evil robots. And so we, we way over dramaticize what's going to happen here. And, you, and, and we, the, the benefits that we're going to see in the short term will be impressive, but not, not the kind of things that are going to make for good movies, right? The, you know, the ability to use machine learning to be able to identify when a part's likely to wear out to so replace it before it wears out, they're probably not going to make any movies about that. Right? But that's a big benefit, right? The, the ability to flag um, potential fraudulent activities or fake news, Well, maybe fake news might be big news, but, but you know, these are things that are going to happen with these technologies. And they're not very awe-inspiring. Again, they don't sell a lot of tickets uh, in movie theater. But that's the practical story of what's going to happen is organizations are going to be using these technologies around certain areas of the business and start seeing lots of benefits. And what's going to happen when you start seeing business benefits, when one organization sees somebody using machine learning to improve their operational performance, well, they're going to raise their hand and say, me next. Next, and we'll, I think we're going to start seeing a very um, evolutionary approach for organizations adopting machine learning, uh, deep learning, reinforcement learning, and integrating them into the organization to drive outcomes. I, I don't think we're going to get to a point where um, you know it's going to be movie-worthy, re- but I do think that we'll see eventually at some point in time where organizations will start creating smarter products. I like to use this term self monitor, self diagnose and self heal, right? If you, these cars that you're driving them, will start flagging, Oh, this part's going to wear out. And and if it's an autonomous vehicle, heck it might, it might drive itself when you're sleeping at night down to the service station, have this part replaced and then come back home. All right. That's kind of cool. Um, but I'm not going to make a movie about it because it's just, it's pretty blase in what it's trying to accomplish. So I, I think the overhype in AI does us a big disservice, but you know it sells papers. It's, it drives eyeballs. I get people reading my blogs when I make some, you know, outrageous, provocative claim. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it's 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 nothing's going to happen in this space. It's going to be um, movie-worthy, in my opinion, at least in the next few
0: years. Right, and it's it's mostly about. Business value and and the, the predictive capabilities of of, of yeah. applying algorithms.
1: I mean, think think at how how long as an industry we've been happy with retrospective reports on what happened. That's that's the that's the 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 fame of our industry. Is that we oh we build better reports and dashboards to tell you what happened. We've made not a lot of progress on predicting what's likely to happen. I mean, there are organizations out there who have done a nice job of it. You know, Netflix telling you what movies you probably should be looking at. Amazon telling you what books you should read, right? Um, You know, eHarmony telling you who you should be marrying, right? There are some nice stories out there, but overall, they're the exception, not the rule. And so we have a long way to go. We have to jump over this chasm where we're satisfied with just getting reports on what happened. We need to demand more. We need to demand more from our data and from our, from our analysts It says, you know, don't tell me what happened. That's like driving my car with a view mirror. Tell me what's likely to happen. So tell me what I should be focusing on. Become more predictive. And so I think as an industry, I, I hope we're getting ready to jump over that analytics chasm and start becoming more predictive, more prescriptive, more real time. But most organizations aren't anywhere near that yet.
0: Well, I'd love to uh, shift, the, uh, shift the focus to, to your predictive capabilities and, and get a sense of, I mean, as, as you look forward over the next uh, several years, I mean, what, you know, how, how do you see the industry evolving? And, and are, there, are there some, uh, some outcomes that, uh, that you're particularly optimistic about?
1: Well, I, I think we're going to start seeing more and more um, success stories. There's when we're seeing them already where organizations have taken what I consider the right approach around outcomes. Um, I think we'll hopefully, God, I say this and I know it's not going to happen though. I mean, that we, we, we stop chasing the shiny object, but the shiny object this past year was, was blockchain. Right? Everybody had to have blockchain. And now next year it's going to be quantum computing, right? And I know, and that's how that technology is going to solve all mankind's, mankind's problems. I, I, my prediction is we will continue to chase the, the shiny objects, um, but that s- smart organizations will realize that that is not a means to an end, or it's only a means to end, it's not the end, and that one-by-one one organization will start focusing on the business outcome. And here's my prediction, I guess, if I had to make one. I think the big dramatic improvements are not going to happen at the large organizations. They're going to happen at the medium to medium-sized organizations, and the reason why there's a better chance for medium-sized organizations to have success with all these "quote unquote" AI technologies is because you have the ability to enact cultural change, to drive alignment and adoption around the use of analytics that drives business outcomes. It's really hard for large organizations to do that because you have political silos. Like, I, like I, we know that we know that data silos is still a problem. I, if you walk in an organization, and you, data silos is no longer a technology issue. That's a cultural issue. That's somebody doesn't want to share their data. And so I I don't think the large organizations are going to take us to the promised land. I think it's these small and medium sized organizations who realize that they that we've democratized AI and, and and data science and they have equal access to the same tools that anybody else does. And instead of worrying about you know do I have as many data scientists as Joe Blow. They're more focused on how am I driving business value. So my I don't think it's a prediction, Ed, as much as a hope, that organizations realize that the, in in the end, the conversation, the real value isn't around the technology,
0: it's around the economics. Now that's that's a great insight. And I think they the the point here that these small to, smaller to mid sized organizations that have less I would say or fewer organizational barriers or organizational obstacles are, uh, in your view, right they're much better positioned to see more substantial gains than the uh, than, than the companies that are you know, so big that they 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 trip over their own shoelaces, as it were.
1: Yep, I, I to me that's that, I, I, and I have experience. I've seen a lot of really interesting, you know, medium-sized organizations who had a. Um, a visionary CEO who have done some very interesting things. Again, we don't, don't, we don't make movies about them, but they are, they are driving the business and are having lots of success um, at a much higher rate than we're seeing very large corporations, but like you said, can't seem to get out of their own way, or especially the political infighting that stops these organizations from
0: being successful. Well, there's also a lot of uh, innovation among small companies, and would love to get your thoughts on, on any interesting uh, startups or, or, or smaller companies that you might ha- have your eye on.
1: Well, the, the general category of, of auto ML um, really has me intrigued. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I actually got a, a disclaimer here. I serve on the board of, of Big Squid. They're an auto machine learning company. Um, and I really enjoy and excited about what those companies are doing. I think, I hope that they have the ability to do to machine learning what Tableau did to data visualization. Right? Tableau was really successful and continues to be successful in taking and driving data visualization down to the common person. Any business person can use Tableau and get a good feel for what's in the data. I'm hoping that that auto machine learning can do the same sort of thing by introducing some ways to automatically do some machine learning. Now, it's not just about the machine learning. There's going to have to be a lot of um, education in the results so people know what they're getting out of these machine learning algorithms. But I think the auto ML thing is a very interesting space. And I expect to see um, more and more adoption and growth in that space and probably the ultimate compliment for a lot of those companies. Maybe when they get acquired and stick, get stuck inside bigger technology organizations to transform how these organizations are taking advantage of the data they're collecting. So to me, that's that's the one space I find very interesting.
0: Great. And the my last question, I always like to ask for a recommendation of a uh, or, or a resource or or something that you would share to uh, to you know to a friend or colleague. Not uh, doesn't necessarily have to be tech related.
1: Well, um, so here's, I, I've actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not much of a book reader. Um, I, I really like to get most of my learnings from a lot of the research that's published pretty freely on Twitter. Um, and and in fact, in my spare time, I like to, I watch the TV series Portlandia with my wife because I used to live in Portland and it's (laughs) parts of it are, are, are just just too true to life. It just makes me laugh. But over the holidays, I was given two books. Um, a book called The Runaway Species, which is really a, a design thinking kind of a book about how, how creativity is formed by taking existing ideas and bending them, breaking them, and blending them. And I, and I, I read the book and I thought it was very, very apropos for the things we're doing. And I was also given the book, The Book of Why which really is more of a data science kind of book that talks about you know, um, causation versus correlation and things like that. And I've, I've been reading both these books simultaneously, and I found the, the, the overlap in how they think about creativity, one from a cultural perspective, the other one from a data perspective, to be very, very powerful. In fact, I'm in the process of writing a blog roughly titled um, Design Thinking Humanizes Machine Learning. It talks about how these two areas really come together when you start blending um, these think about what is what is what does data science do? Data science discovers the criteria for success buried in the data. And design thinking dis- discovers the criteria for success in the minds of the users. They they both they use different techniques, but they're both very iterative focused, fail fast, try things, mock-ups, illustrations, those kind of things to really um, get the juices of the organization flowing because a lot of the knowledge we need is already hinted at by what's buried inside the tribal knowledge. And so I, I'm doing a weird thing. I'm reading these two books simultaneously. I read one chapter from one book, and another chapter from another book. And it's very, very unlike me, Ed, to read a book. But <laughs> I, um, I, I've done something different here because two different friends from two different perspectives gave me two different books that I found in the end. I guess I'm blending them together to steal from one of the concepts in the book. I find these two books very much blend together.
0: Fantastic. Well, those are those are great recommendations, Bill. And uh, again, we want to thank you for, for joining us. Uh, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momentum Partners, with another episode of our Edge podcast. And our guest has been Bill Schmarzo, uh, CTO of IoT and Analytics at Hitachi Vantara. Uh, Bill, thanks again for joining us.
1: Hey, Ed, thanks very much. I love the conversation. A lot of fun. And oh, by the way, Happy New Year to you.
0: (laughs) Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partner.